Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is the Athletic Baseball Show. Tim McMaster here along with Ken Rosenthal. It's the Monday Mailbag Edition where there are no unwritten rules, but you can write your question via email. Or you can also call us via voicemail. We'll get to how to do that a little bit later. Uh, Ken, you were recording this from San Diego. It is Sunday as we record this right now. The Braves beat the Padres to even up their record at 5-5 five and five on Saturday. Those two teams are going to meet in the Sunday night game too, but that hasn't happened yet as we record this. Um, the Padres along with the Mets, share kind of similar and fascinating storylines this season. Two franchises that have been unable to find sustained success. They've been taken over by a pair of veteran managers with proven track records. You got Buck Showalter. He entered the season with over 1,500 career wins with the Yankees, D-backs, Orioles, Rangers. Bob Melvin, over 1,300 wins with the Mariners, D-backs, and A's. And now those two guys try to make it happen in two franchises where it just hasn't. Yes, Tim, and it's really interesting. I spoke about it on the broadcast on Saturday as well. Both these managers are veterans, as you mentioned, and both took over teams that had underperformed for back-to-back first-time managers. With the Mets, it had been Mickey Calloway and Luis Rojas. With the Padres, it had been Andy Green and Jace Tingler. Now, there's nothing wrong with a first-time manager. We have seen in recent years some very successful first-time managers. Alex Cora, foremost among them, but I think you'd have to mention Aaron Boone, Mike Schilt with the Cardinals, who is now the Padres' third base coach, at least temporarily, while Matt Williams recovers from surgery. And we've seen others as well. I'm sure I'm missing a few. And listen, it's not an exclusive argument here. But we've also seen managers who needed a bump or two before they could succeed. I think of A.J. Hinch flopped in Arizona, Gabe Kapler flopped in Philadelphia, both now very successful managers. And we've also seen in recent years two even more veteran managers than Showalter and Melvin, I'm talking about Dusty Baker and Tony La Russa, be hired and have success. 
So what am I saying here? What I'm saying here is that there is a value to stability, a value to having that firm hand. And I'll give you a couple of different ways that manifests itself. With the Mets, Buck Showalter takes over a team with a lot of stars, right? Well, Buck Showalter has managed a lot of stars. He managed Manny Machado in Baltimore. He managed Alex Rodriguez in Texas. He managed some big-time guys in Arizona. And a Francisco Lindor is not going to intimidate him in any way. And I'm not saying Luis Rojas was intimidated by a Lindor, but he doesn't have the same kind of gravitas and experience in the game. So when the McNeil incident happened last year, he could take control of it, maybe in a better way. Maybe that couldn't have been handled better. I don't know, but that's just an example. With San Diego, it's a little bit different, but think back to the Eric Hosmer trade rumors last year in 2021 and the impact that had on that clubhouse. And think back to the rumors that surfaced about Hosmer earlier this spring. Actually, they weren't rumors. They were reports. And last year, they were reports, too. They were not rumors. They were facts. These talks were happening. So Hosmer, after the Mets deal fell apart, remember, he was supposed to go to the Mets, and it was a complicated deal. Didn't happen. Mets pulled out. Bob Melvin took him aside and said, listen, I want you on my team. You're here. I want you to be here. And it's important that you're here. That meant the world to Hosmer. And I talked about it with him yesterday, and he was full of praise for Melvin. He called him a blessing for everyone in this room. So, again, it's not to say you close off doors to potential first-time managers. Otherwise, you would never know who the next great manager is going to be. And Melvin and Showalter and Dusty and LaRusso, they're not going to last forever. We're going to need new managers. But something that had been lost in the game in recent years, in my opinion is the understanding of the value of experience. And we've seen a lot of new faces come into the game, and that's great. And we've seen a greater amount of diversity come into the game with women and minority coaches, all kinds of different folks that weren't getting opportunities before who need and deserve those opportunities. But there is also value to experience, and that's the only point I'm trying to make here. And it seems here the pendulum is swinging somewhat back to that. And... Hey, the Padres are an incomplete kind of flawed team, especially with the players that they have injured right now, Snell and Clevenger, and of course Tatis. The Mets are going to have their issues as well, but the vibes around those two teams are much better right now than they were a year ago. Great vibes in Queens for sure. The Mets off to a good start. Tom Seaver's statue unveiled on Friday. Um, it's definitely a better feeling there, I think, than it's been since the World Series a, a few years ago, I think, for sure. All right. Um, yeah, it's going to be fun to watch those teams all year round and how those managers handle those situations this season. Let's move on to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week, I mentioned it at the top, you can email us. That's tabaseballshow at gmail.com. But we love it when you call in. So give us a call at 646-543-7072. You can leave a voicemail. And that's how we'll start. Hi, my name's Michael Kirschenbaum. Is there a difference or still going to be a difference between the National League and the American League? With the no DH now, this new feature of scheduling where, if I understand it correctly, starting next year, there will be a lot more interleague play than we're used to. 
it just in my mind feels like within a couple of years, the distinction between the AL and the NL will really only be um, symbolic. And I'm curious if you've heard any kind of internal discussion about whether or not there's any downside to that or the league just sees it as upside. And one other question is, um, is that subject to collective bargaining? Do the players have a say in that, or is that entirely up to the owners at this point? Michael, these are good questions. And as for the amount of interleague games, my understanding is the schedule is subject to collective bargaining, so I imagine the players had some say in that. I don't know that the league can unilaterally dictate, hey, we're going to do this, that, or the other thing. Balanced schedule, unbalanced, more interleague, less without the union's blessing. Not positive about that, to be perfectly honest, but it seems to me that they would have a say. Now, it could be that the union simply can only bargain the number of games, but these kinds of things generally are not done unilaterally. Now, the other question you raise also is really interesting. Yes, leagues are essentially going away, and yes, Major League Baseball evidently wants that to happen. You mentioned the increased amount of interleague games next year when we go to a more balanced schedule. You're absolutely right. There are 20 interleague games on each team's schedule now, maybe 19, but 20 for is generally the standard. Going to 46 next year, 20 to 46, and it's going to be a much different scenario. You're going to have three-game series against 14 teams in the other league and then a four-game series against your natural rival. Not all teams have a natural rival. I get it. But that's how it's going to work. And yes, it's going to be much different. So with that and with the coming expansion, and we don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. And at some point, we're going to have 32 teams. And at that point, I expect we're going to see dramatic geographic realignment. And the expanded postseason lends into this as well because 32 teams, you get the bigger postseason. And that's what led to the balanced schedule and the greater amount of interleague play. So... The blurring of the leagues is something that does not seem to bother MLB. In fact, it's something that they are actively pursuing. And I don't know that it's a bad thing. Now that we have the universal DH, really there's no difference between the leagues as far as the way the game is played. And once we get to 32, that geographic realignment can be something that is quite beneficial for travel and also just... For the way divisions are aligned, you'll never get it perfect, right? You'll never get all the East teams playing each other and all the Midwest. It's just not that simple because there are teams all over the place. But it will probably be more sensible than it is now. I actually have a follow-up for you, on Ken, for that one after what you said. Um, with massive realignment, do you see teams switching leagues again? Like we saw the Astros move to the American League, the Brewers once upon a time moving to the National League. When this happens, or are we just talking about divisional changes? Tim, I believe that we're going to see massive realignment. Yes, okay. teams switching leagues. For instance, eight four-team divisions, right? And you could have, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but you could have Yankees, Mets, Red Sox, Blue Jays, just as one example. And... Yeah, these things are all going to be on the table and all something that baseball looks at. Wow, that would be that would be something. Or yeah, I guess Blue Jays makes the most sense because they're so far north. But I was going to say if you had Mets, Yankees, Red Sox, Phillies, that, that sure some angst I just threw that out there. Bases. But <laughs> no, but there's no question you could make any 
number of combinations, and they'd all be kind of cool to think about. Yeah. But, for instance, the Pittsburgh Pirates in the NL Central, well, maybe we won't see that now. Maybe we'll see something Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Cincinnati, that grouping right there, that would make a lot of sense. All right. Fascinating. All right. Next question. So last week we got a trade proposal question and it was, I thought it was really good. And maybe we're getting a a tradition of this starting up because Richie has another one for you, Ken. He says, if we get to July and the Yankees feel like they can't re-sign Judge, can you see him being traded? If yes, I think Milwaukee would be the perfect match. They need bats, have a deep starting pitching staff, and are in a window to seriously go for it right now. So here's the proposal. Uh, Judge, Gleyber Torres and Gill pre-arbitration with six years of control left as a starting pitcher for Woodruff, Renfro, and Wong. Uh, he says the Brewers upgrade the lineup with Judge and Yelich batting in the middle of that lineup, upgrade and get better at second base for two and a half years, take a hit in the starting pitching, uh, but get young at starting pitching. Meanwhile, the Yankees get the number two they desperately need for the next few years. Uh, DJ plays second base daily. Renfro's a, a pretty good fill-in in right field for Judge. And then Wong becomes that backup utility guy. Um, the money <laughs> is roughly the same. What do you think? Richie, I like the way you're thinking. There actually is a website now. It's called BaseballTradeValues.com where you can enter all the names in your fictional proposal in your head, I've done this, and see where it comes out from a value standpoint. And the website takes into account years of control, salary, all of those things. So when I entered all of those names, and I did this, into the website, they have search gear, it came out incredibly lopsided for the Yankees. And I'll tell you why. Woodruff is the principal player in the deal for the Yankees, right? Two plus years of control he has. Judge, by the deadline, will essentially be two months control, and now it's just under a year. So that's where the value really changes. Woodruff, according to this system that the website uses, he's worth 110.4, whatever number they're equating that to, but it's 110.4. Judge is 35.4. And the other guys sort of balance out a little bit. Torres has a good amount of value. So does Hill, actually. But the Yankees come out way ahead in this thing with almost twice as much value. So while it might make sense in some ways, and while not every trade, by the way, is balanced according to what this website calculates, you'll see some things happen that don't necessarily make sense according to this website. It's not the gospel or anything like that, but it's a useful tool. I don't see that trade happening simply because the control of Woodruff is so much greater than the control of Judge, and those are the principal players in the deal. I mean, that would be going all in for the Brewers. I mean, if you're the Brewers and you're trying to sustain success, the pitching is the key and the years of pitching control, and to give that up for two months of Aaron Judge, it doesn't seem like something David Stearns would would go for. But Right, and we don't really know what Glaber Torres is right now. Right. He's a good player, but... He is not quite defined. This year will go a long way toward, I believe, understanding who Glaber is. And he may turn out to be a star still. He was a star a couple of years ago. But it's kind of an undefined quality there. So you'd be giving up a lot, especially with Woodruff, to get some uncertainty and short-term control with Judge. All right, next question comes from Alan. He says, Ken, if a pitch clock is implemented, what would the penalty be if the clock runs out and the pitcher hasn't thrown the ball yet? The penalty is a ball. And that is what has gone on in the minor leagues and college baseball. 
that if the clock expires and you don't throw the pitch in time, it's a ball. And that's a very simple solution. And the same thing will go for players or hitters who take too much time in the box, and that supposedly will be enforced as well. Strike. And that's how it's going to work. All right. Actually, we had another question um, similar, but from the other side of this. It was from Wayne. He said, uh, since Manfred and crew decided last June it was time to go after pitchers' sticky stuff, let's imagine that we continue to see batters stepping in and out of the box. I noticed over the last few days that we still have lots of games in the three hours or longer range, and that is part of the problem. So if Manfred decides to bring the umpires into this, are there some things the umpires can do to move the game along, not granting batters timeout? not letting them step out of the batter's box, just saying this equation is on both the pitchers and the batters. I don't know if there's a question there, Ken, but he's kind of making the point you were just talking about, that it's not, this isn't just about the pitchers. And that is a good point, Alan. And the same thing is going to hold for the hitters. They're going to have to be ready within that 20-second period, or if it's 20 seconds, whatever it's going to be. I, I misspoke there. I don't know if they've settled on it yet. They've talked about a set time with no runners on base. And at set time with runners on base, a little bit longer with runners on base. They haven't necessarily agreed on that yet. They've talked about some different combinations of times. So, yes, it's going to be on the batters, too. And it's funny you mention, Alan, the umpires enforcing batters staying in the box. We've seen this over the years. And I went back and read some things from 2015 where they were talking about keeping the runners, um, the hitters in the box. Umpires were doing a better job of it. Times of games were down, of course. It completely lapsed. And the penalty system they had in place, it was lifted. And the whole thing never worked. That's why we're still talking about a pitch clock, oh, seven years later. So hopefully, when this thing comes to pass, what we're going to see is just a better pace. And I think that would benefit the game. I don't know that there's any question about that. I know baseball is timeless, but it will still be timeless. You'll still have to get 27 outs to finish a game. It's just that the action will move along quicker. Yeah, and I'll say to Alan and Wayne, go check out the episode of Starkville from a couple of weeks ago when Theo Epstein was on. He went deep into this stuff. And I I want to say that the numbers they're using in the minors this year for the pitch count are like, like 13 seconds with nobody on, 19, 18 with some, somebody That's about on, right. something like that. And they've adjusted that from last year because they found that with they basically never got close with nobody on base, but then they were right. running out of time a lot with runners on. The other thing he talked about was the Arizona Fall League last year with the batters and a couple of big time prospects, Tristan Cassis of the Red Sox, and I'm trying to think of who the other player was, uh, but it was another like top top fifty prospect in the game. Uh, were rung it might up. Might have been Torkelson. Yes, it was Torkelson. Yeah, I think it was Torkelson. You got it. It was Torkelson. Yes. They had two strikes early in the fall league and didn't get in the batter's box, and the umpires rung them up. Now, it's easier for an Arizona fall league umpire to ring up a minor leaguer than for somebody to ring up Aaron Judge in the major leagues with two strikes, but but, uh, it'll be interesting. So check out that podcast from a couple of weeks ago. Really good stuff there. Um, All right, next question. We're going to go back to voicemail and Tom. Hi, Ken. This is Tom from Illinois. In recent years, baseball has expanded the active roster from 25 to 26, and it's even been above 26 several times like it is right now. Teams are also being a lot more cautious with injuries. With all that in mind, is it time for the league to expand the 40-man roster up to 42 or even 45? It seems like a lot more teams are having harder 40-man roster crunches than ever before. Thanks a lot. Tom, interesting question, and it's come up lately because of the expanded 28-man rosters until May 2nd, some GMs have mentioned to me, hey, 
we need 42 or 43 while we're having this expanded roster situation, which to me is understandable and I think makes sense, but they didn't get more than 40. Now, going forward, I don't believe the union would appreciate or approve an expansion of, let's say, 40 to 43 or 44, because basically the 40-man roster forces teams to make decisions. And when you have a player who is out of options and you're bumping them off the 40-man roster, you can lose that player. And that player will then get an opportunity to go elsewhere. And think of the Rule 5 draft as perhaps an even better example. You protect 40 on your roster, up to 40, and then the players who aren't protected have the ability to get selected in the Rule 5 draft by another team, and that ensures them a major league opportunity. It doesn't always work out that way. The player doesn't always stick, but it does create opportunity, and that's why you don't want, if you're the Players Association, an expansion of the 40-man roster. You want teams to be forced to make these decisions and for players to continue to get chances that they might not otherwise get if, let's say, the roster, just for the sake of discussion, was 60, then there would be no movement at all, and these guys would be stuck in systems where they're not getting opportunities. So that's why it's at 40. Hey, there's always room for debate, and you can always say, well, maybe it should be 42 now that we've gone to 26. That's a fair discussion, but I would expect that that would be fought by the PA. That's really interesting because when you first think about it, you think the PA would be all about bigger 40-man rosters because those are players that would be in the PA. But but when you look at it deeper, everything you just said makes a whole lot of sense. Tim, uh, next it's qu- possible I'm wrong about that, and you're right. I mean, it creates more union jobs, but it seems to me that you really would want the players still getting the opportunities. I, I have not asked the PA this yeah. question, and I will because it's a very interesting one. Yeah, really interesting. Josh has the next question. He says, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Really like what you guys do. Well, thank you, Josh. I'm a Mets fan, and I want to ask about Tyler McGill. As of this email, on Tuesday night, he's thrown 10 and a third innings, allowed only six hits, no walks, struck out 11 hitters. So far this year, he's simplified his windup, basically going from the stretch all the time, and has added velocity to his fastball. While everyone was talking this offseason about the one-two punch of DeGrom and Scherzer and how Bassett deepens the rotation, McGill has looked really good through his first two starts. So my question is this, how important will McGill be while DeGrom is out, and what type of pitcher do you expect to be at his full potential Josh he will be very important and he has proven very important already and it's been fascinating to see his evolution he was pretty good last year but right now we're seeing increased velocity on his fastball increased velocity on his changeup and there was an article in Fangraphs recently about him kind of explaining the changes that he has displayed so far and last year his fastball got hit pretty good now he's got the extra velo on it. The whiff rate is up. He has a change-up slider and curveball. The change-up velocity is up to about 90 miles an hour, which doesn't lend for much separation, but the pitch has such bite on it that it's been a good pitch for him. So I want to see more. Two starts is two starts, and it's a weird season because some guys are ahead of others with the short and spring training. Maybe Tyler McGill, for whatever reason, just was physically capable of coming out of this thing in a better place than some other pitchers. But at the same time, what he has shown is legitimately good stuff. It's really almost number one stuff. So if you pair him 
with Bassett, with Scherzer, with Carrasco, with perhaps soon a healthy Jake DeGrom. Wow, that's a heck of a rotation. Now, they've all got to stay healthy at once, and that's going to be a challenge, but they've got the talent. That's clear. Next question comes from email, though, Ken. It's from Rob Holwell. He says, considering that there's a runner's lane, why are people so against having a runner's base? (laughs) I'm not sure I know the answer to that, Rob. It's a fair question. Now, we have the larger bases coming into play here, so perhaps that changes things a little bit, but a lot of people feel the runner's lane is a little bit obsolete and a little bit weird and shouldn't necessarily be a part of this. So I don't know exactly where that's going. I don't have a good answer for this one. I'm going to be very honest about it. I'm not sure what you necessarily mean by a runner's base. What do you think, Tim? Well, I think what he means is the runner's base is if you've seen, um, I think a lot of like softball, league, adult softball leagues have it where there's the the base in fair territory that we're used to. But uh, then there's the, it's orange a lot of times, base in foul ground that the runner just runs through. And then, I mean, one of the advantages obviously is there's much less likely a chance of a collision at first base. And the weird, right, the weirdest thing about the baseline in Major League Baseball is that you have to run down the baseline <laughs> in foul ground, but the base that correct. you're actually running towards is in fairground, and so it eliminates that. I think that's what he's going for. Okay, I can buy it a little bit, but (laughs) of all the problems facing the game today, I just don't think the runner's base is foremost among them, and I'm not dismissing your question, Rob. Any question here is valid. I welcome them all, but I just don't know that that's going to be something that is going to come up. It hasn't come up as far as I know. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. All right, and then final question, Ken, comes from Eric. He says, the Braves gave out their rings to the active players on the roster this weekend. This last weekend. I'm curious about when they will give out rings to other people, in particular, Sean Kazmar Jr. With all the attention his story got last year, it seems like there is an opportunity for a feel-good story to interview him when he gets that ring. I'm not sure how they're going to give it to him, and I was just with the Braves, and I actually asked the question, and I was told they probably would mail it. Because Sean Kazma right now is working in the Angels organization as a hitting coach for the Arizona Complex League team. That's a rookie ball team. It used to be the Arizona Summer League or whatever they called it. But now it's the Arizona Complex League. So he's working. And he can't necessarily just fly into Atlanta to get his ring in a special ceremony. I don't know that they can fly to Arizona. Although I guess they could. 
when they visit Arizona, give it to them at that point. But I don't know how that's going to work exactly, but I'm sure he's going to get his ring. And my goodness, that ring, <laughs> it's incredible. I don't know if people have seen it, but you should check it out by Googling it. It actually opens up. It opens up to reveal a lit truest field. Not lit with fans cheering. I mean lit like lit up. And it is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I was asking Brian Snicker about it. And he said, well, the day we got the rings in the ceremony, we I, I shook hands with everyone. I shook hands with everyone with the ring on my right hand. And I still have a sore hand a week later from that. <laughs> so <laughs> I asked him, what are you going to wear this thing? He said, well, if I wear it, it'll be on my left hand now. And he said special occasions. It's a massive thing. It's really cool, all the different touches that they put into the thinking behind it. And it's just something to see. But as for Kazmar, I'm not exactly sure. I think the Braves were just in Arizona, if I'm not mistaken. I can't recall exactly. But maybe that's when they do it. Again, I'm not quite sure. I saw somebody write that you can see the Braves ring from space. <laughs> uh, it's pretty much true. So <laughs> it, it's it's really something. And what I like about it and what Snicker mentioned is that there are a number of touches that evoke Hank Aaron. I believe 44 diamonds or something like that. There's some 44 connection to it. And it's just really well thought out. There's a reference to the trade deadline, which, of course, was so meaningful to the Braves last year, the players that they acquired. So I just love seeing it. It was really cool. And by the way, the Braves have not played Arizona yet, so I stand corrected there. But at some point they will. Maybe that's the time to have the Sean Kazmar ring ceremony. All right, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, if you want to get involved down the road, I said it uh, a little bit earlier, but call us 646-543-7072. You can email tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Next up on the Athletic Baseball Show Tuesday, of course, as always, Starkville. Bruce Bochy making his first ever visit Whoa. to Starkville. Yeah, we tried to get Boach last year. Um and it just didn't come together. But uh, but he's coming on. I think he's going to talk about unwritten rules, Ken. So that should, that should be fun. Oh, boy. Uh, Boats will be good on that one. Yeah. And, hey, there's been – I should say this. I should mention this, Tim. There's been a lot of discussion about this. I wrote a column about it this week as well. And it's almost in the eye of the beholder. But my point with the Giants is if you're saying we're not going to observe the unwritten rules – but we don't care if the other team, the opponent, does not observe them either. That, to me, settles it, and it's a good way to go. Yeah. So there's always going to be debate. I was speaking with the manager the other day. He said, once the league gets to seven, I don't push it. And that is certainly the traditional way. But the Giants want to look at it differently. Now that the Universal DH is in both leagues, eh, I, can see, I see the logic behind that. I do. So it's going to be a debate all season long. I'm sure some team is going to do to the Giants what they did to the Padres, and we're going to have a lot of fun with that. Yeah, then you see. You see how they handle it, and then we move on from there. All right, if you want to uh, join The Athletic and get all the great writing, not just the baseball stuff, but, hey, it's NFL draft season right now. Dane Brugler puts out The Beast. You may have heard of it. It's the greatest draft um, resource you can find. If you're a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get The Beast for free. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Right now you can join for $1 per month, up to six months. Uh, Ken, have a great week. Where are you next week? 
I am in Minnesota, a little bit different climate than San Diego. Yeah, change in thing. Well, maybe maybe spring will arrive in Minnesota by then. Have a great week, and have a great week to everybody out there.